we saw that like, wow, there was a real opportunity to help you know users, especially at scale of Kubernetes, manage these kind of cost and performance related trade-offs. So we started talking to users and, and one of the biggest pain points we saw right away was that you know, it was actually really hard for users of Kubernetes to, to even monitor you know, costs uh, like effectively. You are listening to the Kubelist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF Sandbox, incubating and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. Together with Benji DeGroot, we publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, Puppet, Sneak, Harness, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at replicated.com. Benji is the co-founder and CEO at Shipyard, where they enable software teams of all sizes to build, test, and deploy faster and more reliably via their ephemeral environment management platform. Get started with ephemeral environments at shipyard.build. The Kubeless podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kubeless weekly newsletter and read previous issues at kubeless.com. On this episode of the Kubeless podcast, Benji and I had a great conversation with Webb Brown from Stackwatch. We wanted to chat about their open source project, OpenCost, which was submitted to the CNCF as a candidate for sandbox inclusion when we were recording. We start the conversation with Webb talking about his background and how he was managing infrastructure costs at Google, and then went on to discuss creating KubeCost and founding the company. The conversation then transitioned to creating OpenCost, the coalition, and submitting that to the CNCF. We did dive a lot into the product of KubeCost, what it does, how it works, who might be good users for it, what the problem of cost allocation is, and really just came back and wrapped up with a conversation around working with the CNCF and contributing this back to the CNCF. Hi, and welcome back to the Kubeless Podcast. We have another great discussion today with Webb Brown, founder of Stackwatch and creator of KubeCost. We're going to talk about their open source product, OpenCost. Welcome, Webb. Thank you so much, Mark. It's great to be here. Really appreciate you having me today. Awesome. And of course, Benji's on too. Hey, Benji. Hey, I'm here. Yeah, I'm here. I'm still here. Hi, Webb. Thanks for coming. <laughs> hey, Benji. Thank you again. Really, really great to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about this one. It's our pleasure. Uh, I personally have been using KubeCost on some level for a few years now, so I'm really excited to dig into this one. Great. So like, let's get started here. You know, Webb, just to help kind of kick stuff off, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, your story. Like, How did you get into the cloud-native ecosystem? That type of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so before creating the KubeCost open source project in uh, early 2019, uh, my co-founder and I were both at Google between you know, four and five years each. He was an infrastructure engineer. I was a product manager. Uh, we were both focused on infrastructure monitoring like broadly, but at first on internal uh, platforms uh, like powering Google's uh, you know, infrastructure and applications. My co-founder moved on to Google Cloud. I moved on to a DevTools uh, team. And really throughout this effort, uh, we were looking at this, you know, different aspects of this relationship between cost, performance, health, reliability, et cetera. And what we saw is that like on multiple layers, they're all you know deeply interrelated. Like you can't think about you know managing cost effectively without deeply thinking about the potential performance implications of either an application or configuration or, or infrastructure change. So we were fortunate enough to see some of our teammates join the Kubernetes effort you know, really early days. And we saw that like, wow, there was a real opportunity to help you know, users, especially at scale of Kubernetes, manage these kind of cost and performance related trade-offs. So we started talking to users and, and one of the biggest pain points we saw right away was that it was actually really hard for users of Kubernetes to to even monitor, you know, costs uh, like effectively. Um, when teams were coming from VMs, they typically had, you know, relatively complex showback or chargeback, you know, concepts in place. When they moved to like containers that were really dynamic in Kubernetes environments, they had a much harder time. Uh, so that led to the birth of the KubeCost open source project. What? created like that difficulty and that change from the VMs, was it really just like the bin packing and all the different workloads running on a shared set of infrastructure? Yeah, great question. We, we think it's uh, twofold. 
Um, so first is just like the technical complexity, right? So just this notion that things are constantly being you know, rescheduled, you know, more common that teams are using auto scaling. So like just uh, resources tend to be shared more often. Uh, and then applications and infrastructure tends to be you know, more uh, dynamic or ephemeral. So that's kind of part one. It's just more moving pieces from a technical complexity standpoint. Uh, but part two is we also think like a downstream benefit from just the amazing innovation potential of Kubernetes as a platform and the way teams are using it a lot of the times, which is empowering a lot of different engineers throughout the organization to be able to ship applications really rapidly in a really you know, decentralized manner to where there's less of just like a, um, a small centralized team managing the entire deployment process. So you were at Google. Um, I t- you were working on Borg, is that right? So we were working on like infrastructure monitoring on on top of board, yeah. So doing like you know anomaly detection and you know device health uh, like monitoring and outage prevention that sort of stuff. So that seems like an intense job to do that at the Google scale. Just since we're there, what what any cool little anecdotes you can share with us that are or something? I I imagine that there were some crazy insights that you guys kind of just like flipped a switch and were like, oh my God, we're spending what on what? Yeah, I think some of them were like, you know, just the absolute dollar amounts, right? Like to see an application that had been, you know, deprecated months ago and it was still running and nobody noticed. And yeah, it was costing $100,000 a month or stuff like that where like, you know, most organizations, that kind of stuff would be a really big deal, right? Just the like sheer you know, scale, you know, so I would say like saw things in the like tens of millions of dollars, you know, regularly. But I think that Google is a special place um, for a lot of reasons, but it, it like had, you know, different constraints from most, you know, organizations in terms of like managing costs, right? So like we tried to create a culture of transparency. I felt it was more at the like manager level and like a little bit less at the engineering level. Whereas we now see this like major trend where, you know, more and more engineers are bringing costs in their, their Grafana dashboards or, you know, looking at costs on kubectl, you know, definitely see, you know, costs becoming more and more of a first class citizen. And these figures had been, you know, like in place for years at Google um, whereas a lot of engineering teams that we see are just now kind of trying to have a sense for like, here's the cost of this microservice or namespace or application, et cetera. So before we go too much further, I'd love to like, if you can paint a timeline for us of around like, you know, you have this open source project, KubeCost. Um, it's pretty popular. A lot of folks know about it. You have your the startup, Stackwatch, and now you have an open source project, a different open source project coming out that's open cost. Can you tell us a little bit about how they're related and how you've kind of like gone through that process? Yeah, absolutely. So we started the uh, KubeCost open source project the very beginning of 2019. We did that really just as like a personally or deeply interested in this like, you know, problem space and, and helping users. We launched it with the hopes that it would lead to us you know, starting a company, but we weren't dead set on it, you know, by any means. It was only when we, you know, saw about a hundred teams actively using it and we were able to kind of validate that we were truly like solving a real, you know, business uh, or, you know, technology problem. So fast forward about three months after we launched it, we like, you know, formed our company. Fast forward another like, you know, three to five months, we raised our first like dollar venture capital and then brought on our first teammates. Um, and if you look at where we are today as a company, we're a team of about 40 today, uh, still mostly engineering backgrounds. Um, and we've raised we like north of $25 million in, in venture capital. So you know, what we did is you know, right around when we raised money, we started building enterprise features on top of the KubeCost open source project that do things that are kind of like, you know, very relevant enterprise settings, like, you know, add RBAC and SSO, SAML, that sort of stuff. So we're really excited to launch this brand new effort that's called OpenCost. Um, it's something that we've, we're doing something we've never done before, which is like working with a lot of partners in the ecosystem, basically to take a lot of our open source code, contribute more to open source, and then really build out like a, a standard or spec around how to just measure costs in Kubernetes. 
um, because there's really no kind of uniform answer for like how this is done across different environments, different providers, et cetera. So we've got an amazing group of partners and yeah, really excited to, to launch that you know, here really soon. You can think about it as like, we're contributing a lot of our, our code base to that. And then the Coop cost project uh, will then implement the open cost standard going forward, where again, open cost will be specifically aimed at uh, measuring and monitoring the cost of containers or, you know, containerized workloads in Kubernetes based environments. Got it. So is is open cost really just the spec in order to like create a standard around it? Or does open cost also have an implementation behind it? Yeah, so it'll have both. It will have our kind of core allocation engine, uh, which is, you know, a lot of the kind of like internals of the KubeCost project today. Most of that is open source uh, now, but some of, you know, there's be some additional code open source. And then it's combining that and, and conforming that to this brand new spec uh, that's being created with, you know, this group of uh, partners across the cloud native ecosystem. I know you haven't quite launched it yet, so you, you might not be able to really name name a bunch of names. But like, what types of other partners are you working with? Are they financial services or just other tech companies? Like to define the spec. Yeah, so a mix of like cloud providers themselves, as well as like end users, as well as like kind of you know observability players that have been thinking about kind of cost on different dimensions. And we think that like mix or, or balance is is really valuable. Um, obviously, like the cloud providers have been, you know, hearing about this problem from you know a range of users over the past couple of years as you know Kubernetes adoption has just exploded. You know, in users that are you know like regularly struggling with the problem or you know tackling it on a daily basis, and then observability players that think about this kind of fitting into their broader suite of you know observability metrics uh, related to different parts of you know observing you know a, a tech stack more broadly. That sounds like a pretty large coalition you're building over there. Can I ask, how did you start building that out? Obviously, we're not going to name names right now because it's not complete, but give me an idea of like how do you get started on something like this? Like how do you how do you wrangle all those folks and how do you start an open source project or a consortium or whatever the right term is? Yeah, so in in this case it was really cool where it it almost like happened, you know, whether we wanted it or not, in the sense of like you know, just the adoption of the KubeCost project and some of the like functionality that was exposed, um, just kind of like drew others to start this conversation with us. So I think we started with like you know four or five, and that you know really quickly grew from there. So I think yeah, you know, for anybody like thinking about doing something similar, is like you know my experience in this situation was just kind of letting it happen organically, which is like. You know, starting with a you know project that you think will be valuable, and then just really engaging from those that are using it and you know getting value out of it. And you know, as part of this, we have submitted the the project now to CNCF. Again, you know, like drawing on this like amazing contribution from every partner that's been involved. Um, so really excited to you know see that uh, have kind of a, a neutral governance home one day soon. That's a good path to go through, like have an implementation, get adoption of the implementation, let it mature a little bit, and then like take the lessons from that to build the spec as opposed to the completely opposite angle, which is let's build the spec and then build an implementation. It's just so hard to get it right when you take that approach. Yeah, totally agree. Um, you know, at this point, we've probably worked with close to a thousand teams. You know, we've got thousands of teams using the the KubeCost uh, project today. Uh, so yeah, I felt like from our experience at Google and you know during that time, able to draw on a lot of different you know scenarios. And you know, there's a lot of complexity here, and it's complexity that is at the intersection of your tech stack, but also your organization. Uh, to just pick one example of. You know, again, there's this notion of shared costs in Kubernetes, whether that be like the Kube system namespace or a monitoring namespace, uh, and different teams think about that. You know, sharing those costs differently, and ultimately, it can be driven by something as simple as like, well, who manages your clusters and who has the ability to like influence those costs, for example. So there's a lot of complexity here, and it wasn't until we saw many different variations, you know, outside of Google, that we felt like, yeah, we were in a position to like. You know, comment in a really deep and meaningful way across you know the flexibility and controls that you may want to have in, in different deployments. So yeah, that's super interesting, and I, I think that it, <laughs> I think what's funny here is that you know uh, when describing 
how to do this. It's, it's really the right way to build any product, and that is get the feedback from the users before you start telling them what the right solution is, which is lessons that we've all heard and we all try and use every day, but it's just a, it's a great example of you guys really executing on that. So to switch gears a little bit, just going back to cube cost for a second, um, I can tell you my personal cube cost story is 2019. I'm a high-priced Kubernetes consultant firing up clusters for people left and right. We got a bunch of startups with all kinds of Google and AWS credits to burn. I think actually it was specifically GCP credits to burn. And all of a sudden, some of these companies started doing really well, and they're, they got a CFO or whatever, and they're like, oh, how much are we spending on this? Like, I don't know. And we found KubeCost, and it was a very, very, very easy thing to install. So I've been an early user of KubeCost. Uh, I probably don't use as much as I should these days, but... I think what's really interesting is how I remember getting value out of cube cost, like within like I think I installed a Helm chart and that was it. And then like all of a sudden, my I had like this dashboard that I could proxy into that would, you know, maybe not the best CSS I've ever seen, but I appreciated it nonetheless. <laughs> so just talk to me, like, what were the original goals for cube cost itself and? Are you aware of how good a job you did at just making it accessible right at the beginning, and how much energy did you put into that? And just let's talk about the product a little bit. <laughs> That's amazing feedback. I not heard that story, so <laughs> to really appreciate you sharing. So I, I think there's a couple things that like that highlights to me. First is that there's typically like a a scale you know threshold where you know teams this starts to become relevant, right? And you know maybe it's fifty thousand dollars a month, maybe it's a hundred thousand, maybe it's you know. $500,000. But typically it's when, you know, these dollar amounts start to get big enough to where, yeah, a CFO or, or somebody starts to be a little uncomfortable that they don't have, you know, great, great visibility here. And now that, you know, Kubernetes itself is managing billions and billions of dollars on compute, we're just seeing more and more companies like hit that threshold. But yeah, from there, we have been really focused since day one of just, this being super simple to install and, and you know get up and running and, and get value from, you know we tried to from the day one like create an installation or create a first day experience that we as engineers would would want to use and be happy with, right? And so that is um, you know for most teams I would say ninety plus percent of teams it's a Helm install that you know depending on your provider and how long uh, it takes to like provision. You know, or, you know, spin up, you know, new pods. Uh, it could be seconds. It could be a couple minutes. And then from there, by default, we're scraping data every minute. Um, that's configurable, but like we would start collecting information. So within you know a handful of minutes, you should have like real you know visibility and and really even start to get insights on your environment. And I, I think like you you touched on kind of the two pain points that we saw, which was. One is just like observability is really hard here. Again, you know, a lot of teams like it's hard to say the cost of a cluster, the cost of a namespace, or however they like logically group applications. But then, you know, even you know, more importantly, you may say this that like as a downstream effect of that is like it's hard to be really efficient when you don't know the cost of different applications and you know different environments. And so what we see is like while the KubeCost application has a bunch of different insights on how you would like optimize your your infrastructure, your Kubernetes configuration, your applications, etc., we've seen time and time again it's just the like transparency and awareness leads to a bunch of like improvements alone from you know enabling just accountability, like you know letting engineering teams manage their own resources, etc. So yeah, there's a lot of you know thought that went into that day one and. Again, we've just kind of refused to ever let that like installation process become any more complex than again just a you know a simple Helm install. Is there like a, a size or scale where you see people you know like adopting KubeCost and having a lot of success? Whether that's you know fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars a month in Kubernetes spend that you that you mentioned, or maybe there's other criteria like you know you grow large enough that you you know you have a CFO, you have a team that's that's looking at this, or are you seeing you know folks adopt KubeCost when they're even a lot smaller? Yeah, so the range is really big, um, and it's amazing. It's it's you know the range is big in terms of like scale and industry, and there, so there's a you know a lot of factors. I would say there's kind of two pieces that to me I see you know as, as kind of big picture trends. One is that like 
if you're doing things in a, an environment that is like very dynamic and, you know, like your peak, you know, scale load is expensive, even if it doesn't persist for very long, that will have teams, you know, kind of have, you know, heightened sensitivity. And one example may be that like, you know, for a very short period of time, you spin up a really expensive, you know, cluster with a lot of GPUs to like do a bunch of, you know, like really expensive training data. You typically wind that down, you know, or scale that down quickly, but sometimes that doesn't always go as planned. Uh, and so, you know, you may be planning to spend $50,000 a month and sometimes you accidentally spend $250,000. So, you know, those types of environments, I think, you know, drive people to like start this type of, you know, monitoring observability earlier. But then I would say like, you know, around the like $500,000 a year, you know, million dollar a year uh, mark in that like you know, general range, a lot of teams start looking at this really closely. One thing we do whenever we start working with a team is we start with like just one number from an optimization perspective. And that would be looking at this notion of like cost efficiency, which is basically like of every dollar you're spending, you know, in all of your environments, how much are you actually utilizing? And it's not uncommon for that to be like a single digit percentage uh, when we start working with teams. And that most of the time is like, majorly eye-opening for teams right like and typically at that threshold it's like yeah you're talking about the potential to save you know relatively quickly you have multiple headcounts and so that's typically a, a pretty good motivator for teams to say like okay we can you know spend a little bit of engineering time starting to think about this problem i mean that that whoa 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 hold on give, give me that algorithm so okay so cost Meaning I've got 10 servers that are currently run, sorry, 10 nodes on my Kubernetes cluster. But I know by looking at my prom or my Prometheus that, you know, the CPU utilization is at, let's say 5% for on, on average over the month. Then according to your, then that, that's basically saying that I'm basically have 95% too much capacity on any given day. Is that, that's the summary of that? Yeah, yeah. So let, let's, um, if you think about a cluster that has like, you know, CPU and, you know, let's say just, you know, RAM and, and disk, right? We'd be doing that like cost weighted kind of utilization average that you just described across all those resources, right? And so just what you said, if, if CPU is like 99% of your costs and your average utilization over, you know, some historical window is 5%, uh, then yeah, that would like anchor you towards, you know, a very low cost efficiency number. You know, then you get into discussion around like, okay, well, that's you know your average utilization. What about like you know peak or you know P ninety nine, etc. And then you get into like these, um, you know, just can be really intelligent approaches for like scaling up, you know, based on demand or you know shifting costs across you know lower cost thresholds, whether that's different tiers of disk or you know spot savings plans, etc. The coup cost product today has about 16 different insights, uh, the you know, community version of KubeCost. And so there's a lot of different things that teams can think about configuring to, to like increase that number. So does it just give those, those insights and those learnings, or does it offer like very, very specific remediations or like suggestions, like switch to this instance type on, a, on your EKS node group or something like that? Yeah, so, so it would give both. Um, so you know, to use that example, like you know, it would be Looking at historical utilization across all of your applications, uh, you can even provide context to say that, like, hey, this is an HA application, so I want more resources, and I'm comfortable with like a lower average utilization, so I can be very confident that I'm not going to be, you know, CPU throttled when I have a burst. So, would take all of that into account, and then say, hey, given that you're in an EKS environment, run these like different bin packing algorithms, and here's a recommendation. On like uh, you know a single you know node pool like um, setup and then you know a more complex. So from there, actually, you now have the ability as of a very recent release to like you know one click kind of accept those actions, whether that be like you know right sizing a, a set of pods or the infrastructure itself. Okay, so cost efficiency is what you guys call that. That that seems pretty darn powerful. Um, I have to say, as a user of clouds for a very long time. I've always kind of felt like they kind of don't want us to know what we're doing. I won't ask you to comment on that, Web, but I, I think we all kind of know that part of the model is is we just throw it over a wall and have someone else worry about it. I'm just curious, has there been any weird pushback to this that you've seen 
from developers being like, I don't want to know how much I'm spending or, or whatever. Like, is it always, is it always positive or is there, is there negative there? Or what are the lessons that you've learned there about when you're opening up people's eyes to this cost efficiency number? Because like, I'm sure that I'm, I know that we're guilty of it at shipyard, but like, you know, all of a sudden you go to a CFO and you're like, Oh yeah. So it looks like you spent a hundred thousand dollars last month and you only need to spend $7,000. That can be a tough pill to swallow. Just curious how you navigate those waters. Yeah, I'd say overall it's been incredibly positive. And I think, you know, part of that probably stems from like, you know, we were in those shoes, you know, not long ago at the like, you know, cloud providers and kind of like, you know, understand the perspective of like, um, at the end of the day, if it like negatively impacts the customer experience um, in any way, shape or form, you know, you, you do care about it, right? But that being said, like, if you look at the arc of kind of the cloud native journey, the last couple of years, most teams, you know, were really, you know, kind of getting started on their like production move to Kubernetes. And so there's a lot of, you know, focus on kind of say, you know, day one problems, but like, you know, getting applications to be up and running, you know, like for the first time and then making sure they're secure and reliable, et cetera. Cost typically comes after that. And, you know, I think as a result, you're starting to see, you know, cloud providers be more and more, you know, focus on it and, and think more and more about it. Um, I think, you know, we've already seen that shown with just kind of involvement of some great cloud provider partners in the open cost effort. But I think, you know, the other insight is, you know, if you, if you look at the CIO's perspective or, or CFO's perspective and they're, you know, they're betting on Kubernetes in a really big way because, you know, it's a no-brainer. There's all these amazing innovation benefits and, you know, scalability, flexibility, et cetera. There's oftentimes this piece of, you know, just getting them comfortable with the fact that they will have, you know, some observability and some guardrails and some ability to manage cost. And so from that perspective, again, you know, very much see the cloud providers realizing that this is a way to, you know, get teams comfortable with, you know, scaling their workloads in, you know, different cloud environments. And again, I think that's only really now coming to the forefront as you're talking about like, you know, tens of billions of dollars, you know, being managed in Kubernetes platforms today. I'd love to dive into a little bit more about what the product KubeCost does. It's you're right. Like we talked about, like, you know, the the initial example that Benji mentioned was CPU utilization, right? That that's useful, but I don't think that that's like the depth of what the product actually does. Just kind of like poking around the website, like cost allocation is something that cloud providers can't really do and KubeCost can do that. Can you help me understand a little bit about what that is and how you're able to do it? Yeah, absolutely. So that like cost allocation piece is really the like core of this observability problem. So, you know, to go back to the example from earlier, you're, you're in a large scale, you know, EKS cluster with, you know, hundreds or thousands or maybe even, you know, tens of thousands of nodes across, you know, different, a, a different set of clusters. And you're running, you know, different instance types. You may be running across AZs, across regions, again, across multiple clusters. You, you know, have RIs, you have savings plans, you're leveraging spot elsewhere, and you have, you know, a, a combination of Kubernetes controllers across deployment, stateful sets, et cetera. You're using auto scaling. Uh, to actually come back and say, here is the cost of an application in that environment is, is really, really complex. And so what KubeCost would do by default, you helm install it, it'd be using public AWS pricing. And then at any point, you can integrate it with your cloud account. And it would then kind of reflect your actual bill. And that could be because, again, those savings plans, spot, et cetera, being applied. It could also be that you have an enterprise discount applied on top of it. KubeCost would kind of reconcile any price you know, in your infrastructure uh, to what your actual bill says. So that's incredibly powerful as like a foundational problem to solve. Because now that you know the cost of you know everything in your environment, you can now start to think about you know budgets or policies or alerts with a degree of accuracy that just wasn't possible you know before that was in place. Yeah, that's that's actually super cool. So that will actually then go even like into the Kubernetes cluster, not just like looking at the cloud provider, but like taking the the control plane and the shared infrastructure cost and like calculate the ratio of the cost that that's using, put it back to that application. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, one example would be, you know, you deploy a new like, you know, staple set in your environment. Uh, it you know gets scheduled on say like multiple nodes. Uh, we'd be looking at you know the amount of resources it's requesting, using the cost of those resources on those particular nodes, uh, and then can you know aggregate that in any dimension. So if you want to look at you know that cost by labels or annotation or namespace or just for that particular you know stable set, uh, you can look at that you know in any different dimension. And again, have a bunch of configurability on top of that to say that oh this is actually a shared resource and it should be you know distributed in this fashion across my other tenants etc so the only thing i really need to do is just make sure like my apps have some label or annotation or some grouping and then kubecost can figure the rest of it out yeah and there we really try to meet uh you know teams where they are um and oftentimes teams are already you know have some sort of structure just to determine owner or you know like tenant isolation so it's yeah it could be labels it could be annotations it could be just you know namespaces we even see things like you know teams having um you know an entire uh like cluster or node pools with taints and tolerations for different tenants so um a lot of different ways in the kubecost project to, to slice and dice that data so one question, well, I have a few questions, but one question that I have is, let's just say that I am very, very, very uh, privacy-driven, security-conscientious, and I don't want KubeCost to know my utilization exactly, or maybe there's just some metadata in there. Like, is there, does, does my info stay on my own cluster, or how does, what's, the, what's the data model around where my data lives? Yeah, it absolutely does. This is another thing that is super important to us. We talked about just kind of building the product experience feature that we wanted to see from day one. And that was, we wanted to be able to install the product in in minutes or less. We definitely didn't want to have to get on the phone with like, you know, anybody from sales or anything to install the product. And we felt that we should have total control and ownership of all our own data. So by default, Nothing ever leaves your environment. You can even, you know, lock down your know, namespace egress where KubeCost is installed. By default, we ship with a persistent volume where, you know, there's a time series database and like, you know, caching layer data stored locally in that cluster. You can choose to write that to say an external storage location like an S3 bucket of which you like own and control completely. So that, you know, all three of those aspects are, are super, super important to us. That said, we do now have a host of product that's in limited availability that we're actually testing with a handful of users um, that say we would prefer to you like you know managing our, our data plane for us, where we would just ship like a really small, you know, single pod agent and like push metrics to us remotely. So that's more of like a, a SaaS model then at that point. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. I mean, because that is something I remember explicitly being like, oh my God, I love this. They they're not like I'm running this on a pod. I'm not like the interface itself was on a pod, not actually going to someone's website that has all of my information that I don't want them to have. Um, I have to tell you that what I do with what with my company with Shipyard, uh, we let's just say this: every one of our customers has a single tenant cluster, um, and it's been like that since the beginning. And I we abuse cube cost in a few tricky ways at the beginning there. And got away with some stuff that we probably shouldn't have gone away with. Sorry about that. But <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. It's not a confessional. I'm sorry. But I, I just felt the need to tell you I'm sorry, Webb. But it made me love your product. I will say that so very, very much. Today, if I am signing up for KubeCost and I, let's just say, I've got, well, I won't be specific about Shipyard's numbers, but I've got, let's just say, 10s, 20s, 30s, hundreds of clusters possibly. But each one of them maybe only has a few nodes. That would fall into the business class, right? But then all of my data is living on each one of those individual clusters. And so no one sees my data, my customer's data. It's just this unified thing that is pretty great. And then it can also help me figure out how to make those clusters more efficient for my customers. Is that correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, first, appreciate you sharing that story, and I think it uh, I think it speaks to you know how we think about building products, which is um, you know if you could see my face when you were telling that story, I have a big smile on it, and it's like you know we want to we want to be helpful, 
uh, you know, first and foremost, and you know, above everything else, always. The the reason so we've got uh, on top of the community version of KubeCost, we've got two paid tiers, a, a business tier and an enterprise tier. Business tier allows you to do just what you said, which is like toggle back and forth between, you know, unlimited versions of clusters. We've just found that users uh, generally find above, you know, say three, four or five clusters to have like a single interface to where they can easily transition across. But then the enterprise product itself deploys with like a typically a different architecture, which is commonly backed by like a you know a storage bucket and then uses like a Thanos or Cortex to build just a totally unified view of everything. Uh, so then you can truly go and see, you know, all the insights or optimizations that you know KubeCost has, what's like the highest dollar impact. And that could be on, you know, cluster number 47 out of you know 120. Um, it also allows you to say, what's the cost of this application across all of my clusters, all of my environments, mm. and filter, you know, across say DevProd staging, for example. So those are yet you know two of the kind of key features that are unlocked with those uh, with kind of paid versions of KubeCross. Yeah, I mean, look, I I remember the reason someone explained this to me when I was very early on in my career. The reason why it's really easy to crack Photoshop or back in the day or, or Word or or Maya 3D or whatever these things were is because the college students, the students get the cracked versions, they get good at using them, and then they go to enterprise and they pay for licenses. So I very much say that that model worked or is working a little bit with you guys. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's supposed to say that out loud, but I just did, so what are you going to do? But yeah, no, I, I really appreciated, again, how I had the data on my cluster, I could abuse it, sorry, and it really brought a lot of value. So I think it's, I think it's just super interesting the way that you guys started, and it was just and I don't mean to kiss up too much. I, I sometimes kiss up to projects that I really like, but I really like this project. And uh, it obviously it left a mark because of how open it was and how how much I could just like get get value out of it immediately. So I think a question that I would have for you is: so the next immediate step is open cost, right? Um, but what are you dying and itching to build next into Cube Cost, the product itself? Yeah, you know. A lot of stuff really building on top of open cost. You know, now that we'll have this kind of, you know, unified standard to think about costs in different dimensions. And I think we're just at the beginning of like interoperability or, or integrations and just really cool things we can do there. Um, you know, and to me, the like obvious example is like, you know, we're going to have better transparency across like Grafana, Prometheus and like other time series databases that that speak PromQL. And again, we can increasingly say that like here is a broadly community adopted kind of standard for how to measure the cost. I just view that like so many other really, really interesting approaches for then, you know, managing cost or managing costs relative to you know performance and these other trade-offs are going to start to emerge. And you know, I could see you know some of those being part of the open cost project. I could see the you know a lot of them also just kind of being built on top of that open cost project or like integrating those metrics into other products. So it's such an interesting time for me in that I feel like we're about to begin this brand new chapter, and I feel like there's like 50 different directions and you know integrations that I'd love to see, and I can't wait to see you know like what comes first. And I really look forward to like us working with just people across the the cloud native ecosystem. You know, in addition to kind of some of the core functionality that I think we can build within the the KubeCost product itself. Yeah, I mean, it's actually interesting you say that. Um, I've been looking at cost optimizations a bunch uh, for what we're doing, and a few companies have t- popped up, like Vantage, and then T- Ternary, I think, is the other one, and Cloud Cloud Zero. These are just SaaSes that I've seen while doing some research. Um, they're more about monitoring. The entire cost of the entire cloud. Whereas I think that it's really interesting that you guys are just really focused on the Kubernetes CNCF side of this uh, world. But do you do you, you see a world where you guys all kind of work together, or do you kind of see that something that you would work on outside of, of of a partnership or something like that? Yeah, I definitely think there's the possibility. Um, we're of the mindset of like we're going, like you said, kind of super deep in Kubernetes, and we want to be 
you know, the absolute best at helping teams kind of think about costs and kind of manage, you know, costs. That's what, you know, from our experience at Google, that's the like, you know, biggest pain point that we saw was, you know, during this move from VMs to containers. But ultimately, like the intersection of cloud, you know, kind of general cloud service cost data uh, and, you know, container, you know, kind of deep insights is super, super interesting. Uh, we've got a couple, you know, partnerships that are kind of early days. And I definitely want to see us, you know, do more here as as time goes on. And I think, you know, that can be now with the launch of open costs, that could be, you know, through the pure open source or through kind of, you know, like enterprise coop costs, which has some additional functionality on top of that. So it just feels like we're going to have more kind of options and, you know, paths that go down for different collaboration like that. And I think it will be hugely beneficial. And again, I think there will be a lot of teams that just start at the open source um, and then we kind of see where the integration evolves to. Well, I have a question kind of about the product again. Like, you know, like we talked about the, the like cloud optimizations and in, in, in looking at the cost uh, for the different cloud providers. But I think you, you also work with on-prem clusters. How far down that world do you go, right? There may be folks listening to this that, you know, aren't running in AWS or GCP, but they're racking and stacking servers. They have a colo that they're running Kubernetes. Can you talk about how you're able to help manage that? Yeah, absolutely. So today, between 15 and 20% of KubeCost users have an on-prem component to their like you know, broader footprint. So we've got a bunch of uh, customization and flexibility around bringing basically custom pricing sheets. Um, so that can be like you know, determining an amortization schedule on all of your uh, like, you know, infrastructure, determining from there like an hourly kind of operating cost for say, you know, nodes or resources within your infrastructure. And then from there, you know, really build up all of the same insights uh, that would be available, you know, in a cloud environment. And again, that could be right-sizing applications, configuring Kubernetes, or looking at kind of bin packing efficiency, et cetera down to the infrastructure level. And I would say, you know, one thing we haven't, you know, touched on yet, you know, very explicitly, but a lot of teams with, you know, on uh, on-prem footprint at scale um, where they may have had some sort of chargeback model in place, you know, pre-Kubernetes or pre-containers, that can be a really important component and, you know, data source uh, that they're able to again kind of get back to that accurate chargeback model um, so that different tenants can again, kind of really take ownership and accountability of you know, resources that they're consuming across, you know, maybe not just their on-prem environment, but maybe on-prem plus cloud in like a, a single pane of glass. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, Kubernetes really does become, you know, the, the the modern cloud provider, I guess, if you will. So you handling that integration from Kubernetes into the underlying infrastructure really allows me, a user of KubeCost, be able to say, it doesn't really matter where I'm running this infrastructure. I get the same, like the same reports, the same data, the same, the same information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. That and again, if we kind of go back to some of those core tenets early on, um, we kind of drew a line in the sand. And you know, at the time, I think it first started with one point eleven, but we basically said anywhere that you know the Kubernetes API is fully supported, you know, above you know one point eleven, like we will support you with KubeCost. Um, now we may not have like the deep you know billing API integrations in you know a cloud provider that we haven't you know integrated with, but you know we would work with teams like bring their own pricing sheets if they're really interested. And then two, you know, we now have a number of um, providers that are on the roadmap for open costs where we want to go do those deep integrations. Again, like we have for AWS, GCP, and Azure today, where we would support enterprise discounts and all the complexities of, you know, kind of modern, you know, at scale, you know, enterprise like agreements with, with cloud providers. Got it. I want to just go back for one second because I think that I don't know if we talked about this, and I just want it to be clear. So when I do my Helm install, you know, KubeCost, what what is actually installing? You said it was a, a you know restricted namespace potentially and all that stuff, but I just think it would be good for people that you know. Obviously, I'm I'm basically a walking commercial for KubeCost, but I think it would be good for you to just explain what's actually installed on my cluster all the way. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, First, like tons of you know, kind of modularity and flexibility, um, but at the core is two like kind of required components and the only required components. One is like this: the core KubeCost uh, pod itself. So it is what is 
collecting, you know, all this telemetry, it is what's well, kind of generating the insights, et cetera. It like, you know, has that core allocation, you know, engine that we talked about. Uh, and then it is uh, tightly coupled with just a time series database. Uh, we by default ship with a Prometheus server, but that can be swapped out with, you know, time series database that speaks PromQL uh, of your choice. And then, you know, optional modules, uh, we can uh, ship a node exporter uh, to where you get machine level metrics that unlocks a couple extra uh, like insights. Uh, and then a Grafana like set of dashboards. This is more, it kind of supplements the core KubeCost project, but it also is meant to just kind of be a reference implementation for teams that want to bring cost metrics to their, you know, Grafana dashboards. Um, so really it's those two core, the you know, KubeCost pod and Prometheus, uh, but then a couple other extra optional, you know, add-ons like the one I mentioned, and then also um, a notion of like network, you know, cost monitoring as well. That's an, a totally optional add-on. And, and what exactly is it using to get these stats? It's using the Kubernetes API, I take it, but would t- tell me how that works a little bit. Yeah, so talking directly to Kubernetes API, you know, looking at C advisor data. If you do enable like you know network uh, module, looking at either like you know a, a kernel module or eBPF, you know, then also talking to cloud provider, you know, billing data if you're cloud in- environment. So a range of of data sources, but again, all of that's kind of done, all that processing and ingesting is done directly in the cluster and kind of stays in that environment. Cool. Wait, so the eBPF thing, has that always, is that a new thing or is that, was that there a long time ago? It is a relatively new thing. And that, so that's that optional add on where basically we, it's, I think it's really interesting, you know, as an engineer, but like we build a, a map of your entire Kubernetes environment. And from there, we can say intelligent things about like, you know, cloud egress versus, you know, cross region egress, et cetera. And we can then come back and allocate that to individual pods or services, so that you know if and when you did get a large you know network traffic you know gateway bill etc., um, you can actually allocate those costs back to like the core Kubernetes tenant that you know generated you know said traffic. Oh, that's that's really cool. I, I for those that listen to the podcast or read the newsletter, everyone knows that I think SBOM and eBPFs are the future. So I am always happy to hype that a little bit more. Um, that that node module, that's just a daemon set I throw on. Or the, ultimately, it's a daemon set that I'm putting on each one of my nodes that I want to have that on for, correct? Yeah, exactly. And it's like a single Helm flag. If you just like you know Helm install or Helm upgrade, it would deploy that daemon set. And then, yeah, you would just start seeing you know, network you know, metrics in Kube costs and you know, different insights at different levels, whether that's you know, seeing cost of egress by namespace or label or pod, et cetera, et cetera. You mentioned earlier that you know once you 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 formed the company Stackwatch around it, you started building some enterprise functionality. Is that separate like binaries that I'm actually running, or is it just handled through licensing? So you think about two different like images that we build today is first is kind of pure open source, and then everything else is managed via licensing. Um, and so our view is like, uh, we want to one make it really easy for teams to like try, you know, paid features if they are interested in those. And then two is if you were to upgrade to say enterprise coop costs, um, we want to make it like a super smooth transition, so you can just you know drop a key in and unlock those like other kind of RBAC, you know, SAML, et cetera, enterprise features. I'm always curious, like, so when you when you have that functionality, but it's you know behind an entitlement that somebody has to have a license for, are you just delivering it in the open source repo, or are you managing that and keeping that code proprietary? The implementation of that functionality proprietary. It's a mix, uh, but some of those enterprise features today are in a private repo. Yeah, got it. Cool. I want to transition, you know, like up to the the creation of open costs now. And you talked for a little bit about, you know, earlier what that was and kind of that you you got to build the Coop Cost project. I'm curious, was there one event? Can you can you pinpoint one thing where you were like, yeah, now it's actually time to try to create this consortium and actually create this spec and go through this process? Yeah, I, I think it was um, you know, really kind of 
twofold. One was, you know, partners kind of, you know, coming to us and seeing what you're working on, you know, we're struggling with the same problem in this capacity, you know, could we look at, you know, doing something together or um, do you have anything we can leverage or, you know, does your open source do this, et cetera. So I think it's like, you know, partner engagement, but I think also there was this other piece, which is, you know, after working with close to a thousand teams, we'd seen a, a large number of enterprises kind of roll their own solution here. Um, and that could be, you know, varying degrees of complexity, you know, some just kind of like Grafana dashboard, others like, you know, building things on top of Prometheus and, and others kind of like building their entire end-to-end observability stack. And, you know, after seeing, I would say, you know, more than a hundred of these, we saw that like, Basically, all of them came to different answers, right? And like approached it, uh, the problem from a, a different perspective. And seeing that really combined again with kind of the partner discussion really highlighted the pain point that without like, you know, common definitions and, you know, really a common standard, there's going to continue to be a lot of different ways to think about costs. Again, just because there's enough complexity here. Uh, that you know, teams will continue to kind of build their own solution, getting to their own answer without you know more and more kind of guidance from from those in the in the community. So when you actually decided to do this, like how much of a discussion did you have as a team to decide? Yeah, let's not only create the spec, but actually like put it in the CNCF and go through that project versus just we have an open source project, we can define a spec, we can put this on a GitHub repo. You know, what is the value in 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 actually like contributing that spec to the CNCF and going through that that whole process? Yeah, you know, we had a fair amount of discussion about it um, within you know within the team, and it's interesting because. You know, day one when we launched the Kukos project, we had you know ultimately an intention and a goal to you know, contribute you know either all of that you know open source or or some portion of it to CNCF. But you know, fast forward, call it you know two plus years after launching that project and you know having a bigger engineering team, um, we had a lot of discussions around what's the best way to do this um, and what's the best way to you know segment code and you know put a governance model in place et cetera et cetera so a lot of discussions there um, and ultimately it was around like how do we do the right thing for the community and how do we also put ourselves in a position to like still be able to build a lot you know quickly on you know for the open cost project itself but also on top of the open course project because we still feel like you know, again kind of early days for you know this effort and kind of you know bringing cost as kind of a first class observability uh, metric um, so you know we had a, a lot of discussions there but ultimately it was like you know really kind of bringing these partners in um, and having conversations there uh, to just seeing all the benefits from having this and just a neutral kind of like, you know, third party governed environment, because just the amount of ideas and input we've gotten through that process, um, you know, once we stated those in, intentions and once we kind of, you know, developed this in a kind of community first way have been huge and you know, a, a totally different approach from, you know, us kind of building V1 of coop cost, you know, kind of just with customer conversations, but really kind of taking just our own shot of it at the beginning. Got it. And th- I think there's a lot of CNCF sandbox projects and applications right now. There's a discussion on the, the TOC mailing list around like changing some of the process. I'd love just to hear if you can share a little bit about like the timeline and your thoughts on the process. So just overall, what's it been like? How long has it taken? Like, when do you think it's, I don't think that it is a sandbox project yet. Have you gotten any feedback from the, from the, the TOC along the way? So yeah, we've submitted it. It is in the queue now. I believe when we submitted it, there were, you know, 15 to 20 projects in front of us. We probably first submitted it, you know, about two months ago. And I think we're at like, you know, the very you know, front of the queue now. So from our perspective, like, you know, it's, it's, you know, moved pretty quickly. We were able to talk to a couple of TOC members and, you know, just gave like really, really helpful guidance in terms of like how they think about that and how they think about, you know, going into the sandbox and in preparation for incubating, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I have seen, you know, some of the discussion. I think it's like, you know, really interesting perspectives. From my perspective, it's like, you know, there's a lot more projects that are, you know, really interesting and in being, you know, part of uh, CNCF uh, sandbox, which overall is a great thing. 
I think it's also kind of a good time to uh, reflect on kind of why the sandbox exists, you know, the value it's providing and if that uh, is kind of changing, you know, over time. Um, but yeah, overall, from my perspective, you know, things have moved, you know, pretty quickly, but, you know, hopefully going to get early feedback on submission uh, here pretty soon. For what it's worth, I think that's a, a pretty good approach when you have like a, you know, a relatively successful open source project um, and a commercial entity behind it, just realizing that like, instead of donating or contributing your project to the CNCF, you can actually like contribute a reference spec and an or spec and a reference implementation that your project implements, allowing like really opening the door to competition, but you know, keeping control of of you know your 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 commercial entity, your business. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, we think about it as like we want to help the community kind of build this you know standard that that doesn't exist today. You know, we then kind of want to build a bunch of cool stuff on top of it. But yeah, we would love to see everybody involved and in, you know pulling this standard together and and you know increasingly us just being you know one small voice you know in this like broader group which is driving this effort together and again already we've seen that become true where you know we're increasingly just you know one small piece to a great group that's bringing you know fresh ideas and details to the spec as it stands today. Yeah, so I mean, talk a little about your existing community because obviously it's going to grow, hopefully, and you're going to get more support from the sandbox stuff if and when that happens. But talk about like the last few years and, and building out CubeCost and, and how the community's grown and and the contributions there. And I bet you maybe had a few hires out of that. And just tell us some highlights about the community um, with the existing CubeCost. Yeah, a lot of the CubeCost community has kind of come together organically. We um, we don't yet have someone focused on it full time. So we are, you know, it's, it's like our engineers are in there. We're you know, there and talk directly to users as like, you know, founders or you know, creators of the project, you know, and, and it really goes back to us just trying to create a, you know, a Slack workspace at first, you know, that's like welcoming and you can come and ask, you know, KubeCross projects, you can come and ask, you know, Kubernetes or general optimization, uh, you know, questions. Today we've got, I believe, a about 2,000 users in that community today, but really on our side, you know, looking to invest and just really engage with that community in more and more, you know, meaningful ways, you know, going forward. But, you know, it doesn't look, you know, too much different from when we first started the project, which is just, you know, a couple engineers getting together saying like, here's how we're thinking about, you know, optimization, you know, in the world of, of cloud native. So, okay, this is all super cool. Now I have to ask you the question I love to ask everybody. What is the weirdest, coolest, oddest, and there can be a few of these uh, examples of, of Kubernetes installed doing really weird workloads that you did not expect to see? I feel like you probably got to see, have seen some pretty cool random things with your work so far. So do you have any, any fun anecdotes around that? So many cool things, um, unintentional and intentional one that I like to share that I'm I'm really proud of is and, and it was you know not like an intentional deployment of Kubernetes by any means, but we have now caught multiple Bitcoin miners with the KubeCost project. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but like in both of those cases, our network module was deployed specific namespaces or services were egressing or both consuming meaningful amounts of CPU and then egressing data when they should not have been. And, you know, the maintainers of those clusters went and investigated and yeah, found malware in the form of, of Bitcoin miners. <laughs> so that was not something we necessarily designed, you know, KubeCost for day one, but it made us really, you know, really proud uh, that we were able to to help you know stem those attacks and you know consumption of resources that were unwanted. Yeah, that's a fun one. Another question I have for you that's a little bit going back. Uh, I would love to know. I'm biased, but do you have any rough ballpark on like how much people leave pre-production infrastructure on, and like what the costs are there? Like this is a number that I need to figure out for my own personal stuff over here, but. I'm just curious if you have any insights on that because I, I've heard some astronomical stuff. I have personal experience, obviously, helping people reduce their pre-production environment costs. But I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that. 
It varies. And, you know, one of the big things that like drive that variance from my perspective is, is one, there's like, you know, some organizational or kind of like understanding your application and how you're building microservices, et cetera. But two is like, how do you provision and kind of like isolate different developer environments? Um, and some are, you know, giving namespaces per developer, some are giving clusters, some are giving, you know, virtual namespaces, et cetera. So, Depending on how you're doing that, that can like very heavily impact it. Obviously, there's like you know a lot of other things, but that is you know one big factor. But we regularly see it at like you know 15 to 20 percent of like total compute spend when you give a lot of freedom to developers. But yeah, you know, like you were saying, is that can be you know typically reduced by 50 plus percent pretty quickly. You know, we work with teams to kind of think through the trade-offs of. Obviously, you want you know, your engineers to be able to move really quickly, and if they need a fresh environment to like you know test some you know new service uh, you're building, that can be really important. But also, you want to make sure that yeah, you're not you know totally shooting yourself in the foot from like a cost standpoint while doing that. Right, and then building out. So I mean, okay, now we're going into real shipyard territory here. But have you seen people building out cost controls? like built out of your alerts and stuff like that? Or like, so uh, as an example, like, you know, I, I think something that I uh, very much am an advocate for is ephemeral environments. And so on every pull request, you get an environment that's fully encapsulated, yada, yada, yada. But the cleanup of those environments is something that doesn't always happen. Yeah. And also the the length of them living doesn't always happen. Are people using KubeCost, because I know there's some alerting syntax to actually bake that into their existing bespoke DevOps pipelines or like, are you seeing anything there? Yeah, this is where um, we feel like interoperability and just like an open API and open set of standards is so cool and powerful. Um, And we've seen a number of things, you know, one example would be like, um, we actually had a a user build a Spinnaker like integration of KubeCost where, you know, it would basically as part of your deployment pipeline would look at, Cost, efficiency of costs, et cetera, and could take action for you. And that could be, you know, like block a deployment, uh, for example. But then also have seen teams take exactly what you just said, which is like these alerts and, you know, firing to a webhook and then taking some action where action could be, you know, pausing. Uh, like you know, workloads in a namespace, or you know, notifying an owner that they would be paused in you know some certain amount of time, you know, and, and including like you know just right sizing those workloads, you know, on on their behalf. So what we try to do in general is create these like just really flexible you know APIs and and insights, and we'll you know have more and more kind of the ability to take action with our product. Uh, but yeah, also see teams you know kind of navigating this and building really cool stuff on their own. Yeah, my mind races when you start talking about that. And uh, a little preview for Cube List listeners: we're going to try and get Justin Garrison of Carpenter fame on here and talk about that stuff. But are there any cool integrations with like the auto scalers of the world that you that Spinnaker thing is great? Um, any any projects I could go look at and just be like, whoa, here's someone using this cool open source thing with this other cool open source thing to shape their cluster and get costs down. Um, is there any project like that you can point to, or or not quite yet? Yeah, so a couple things. One is there is now a couple blog posts on the like Spinnaker piece. I believe there's like a user blog post, and now we have one, and I believe the Armory team has one. But like for sure, a user plus us. Then I think a, a really cool place to look also is the like KubeCost community version integration with the cluster autoscaler. There, it can basically just give insights into kind of why autoscaler behavior, you know, is what it is, you know, and that could be like, why isn't my autoscaler, you know, scaling down like I would expect it to? So those would be two that you know could be you know cool, like you know, open source integrations to to check out. You know, there'd be a, a handful of others. You know, one would be just like you know, KubeCost and Prometheus. Where like basically all of these you know metrics that we've talked about from like the core allocation engine are all written back to like you know a time series database of your choice, which by default is Prometheus, and so from there right can take in and do like Grafana alerts, um, you know alert manager, you know custom rules that sort of stuff. 
Now, I know you said that there's a release coming out. Um, I We're recording this before the release, obviously, and we're actually recording this before KubeCon, um, right before KubeCon. Do you want to give us any details on on that release that's coming out and what we should look out for, how we can how we can contribute and keep an eye on it? Yeah, so um, within a, a week uh, after KubeCon EU, um, expect a, an announcement around this brand new open cost effort. We are super excited about it. Again, this is our first thing that we've you know built with a handful of you know partners in the community. Um, and we look at it as, yeah, the beginning of this new chapter of really taking our code and implementation, combine it with this, you know, spec and putting it in a kind of neutral home uh, where, you know, others can drive the roadmap forward, you know, with us in a really big way. Super cool. All right. Well, Webb, that, uh, there's a lot of really awesome stuff. Uh, we all know that I'm a big fan of, of CubeCost. Really appreciate you coming on. And we'll be taking a pretty big look at, uh, at open cost and figuring out how we can use that on our own projects and, and across the CNCF. So thanks again. Thank you guys so much. Really enjoyed the discussion. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Webb. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kubelist.com. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.